Welcome back to the Tapes Archive podcast, where we release interviews that have never been heard before. In this episode, we have a multi-instrumentalist and the secret weapon for so many bands, Adrian Ballou. At the time of this interview in 1981, Ballou was 31 years old and was promoting King Crimson's album, Discipline. In the interview, Ballou talks about various aspects of playing with the Talking Heads, Frank Zappa, David Bowie, and King Crimson. He goes in-depth on King Crimson's album, Discipline. He tells the story about when he got jumped by a gang and finishes the interview telling Mark about his deep love for his family. This week's interview is hosted by Mark Allen. One last thing before we get to the interview, the Tapes Archive podcast is a proud member of Osiris Media, a global community connecting passionate fans with podcasts and experiences about artists and topics you love. Thanks for tuning in, and now it's time to open the vault. What brought you to King Crimson? Well, I had a uh, previous experience with Robert when my, my own band was touring as the opening act for League of Gentlemen. That band was called Gaga. When the Talking Heads went to Europe, I um, received a call from Robert asking if, if I was interested in forming a band with, with uh, Robert and Bill. So I said, sure, let's check it out. <laughs> That's how it all got started. And then uh, the first leg of, the, of King Crimson, which of course was originally called Discipline, was about an eight-week period of uh, rehearsing, writing, touring, and recording. So what's your position with the Talking Heads well, I'm, I'm hoping to do some more work with them whenever they're ready to. I've done all their solo projects, and basically I'm just waiting to see what they're going to do next. And, and I hope that it'll work out. We can do some more work together, because I really enjoyed that. Were you uh, interested in, in King Crimson back in the other incarnations of it? Yeah, I really liked that band. I was very turned on by that band. And it's interesting, I saw the last performance they ever did, which was uh, in Central Park in 1974, and the band was, uh, seemed to, to t- be taking itself extremely seriously. And one thing that I noticed was a pretty stark comparison was, was you up there uh, kind of leading the band and kind of taking it a, a lot less seriously. Do you, do you well, for me, that's kind of important at this point. Basically, that I'm expressing my, my own personality which I believe everyone should do with music. And, you know, I'm just not, uh, I'm not your serious intellect. <laughs> I like to play serious music. I like music can be complex, it can be fun, it can be whatever. I like all, all kinds of approaches to it. But basically when I get on stage, I'm, I'm excited by the fact that I'm on stage, you know. And I get pretty exuberant and I like to jump around and, and laugh and have a good time while you still... Uh, make a hundred percent commitment to the music. Not only the performance so much, but uh, you know the lyrics, for example, uh, "Elephant Talk" I think is, is a good example, especially when you get to the D's. And you say, I always like the B section best. <laughs> I thought that was pretty, uh, <laughs> pretty crazy section there. That was a, I, I had gone through the dictionary, writing down all these different words or underlining them, and then when it came time to record it. You know, by then I'd realized that I had I had sort of an alphabetical order to the whole thing. So I decided I'd just go in and, and try to do it in one or two takes and just use whatever words I could, could remember. So, you know, I left out quite a few, such as confabulation or something of that nature, but it was more uh, spontaneous that way. Does that song have anything to do with uh, interviewing? It just, uh, for me, meant meaningless talk. 
is, is, is what it amounted to. Now, you know, I, I obviously don't think all talk is meaningless, but the, the final ending of it, coming up with the phrase elephant talk, was kind of uh, the signal that it was kind of a, just a spoof on lots of words. It's, it's not a real serious statement or anything. How much hand did you have in writing the music on that album? Oh, I think everyone has an equal hand in it because we just go at it together and we try to make it an equal collaboration and then uh, the music gets to a certain point where we're agreed upon the outline, the shape of it, and then I can determine whether or not I want to write some lyrics and sing something. Before I go into other songs, uh, what is it they use on your guitar to get that elephant sound? I use a flanger, which I set the flanger so that it... Um, it wavers the pitch fairly quickly, sort of like da 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 da, -da kind of like that, up and down. And then I use a, a fuzz tone. So if you just turn those two effects on at the same time, it would just go da over and over. But what I do is then I slide the note up the neck of the guitar, kind of a glissando, and uh, and that's how it sounds like that. It's very simple. <laughs> it's just uh, I like to fool around with all these kind of crazy sounds. It's my favorite thing to do with guitar. Moving on to other songs on the album, I guess, uh, Discipline. Did you write the words for that? You mean Indiscipline? Yeah. And yes. Mm -hmm. Now, is that an artist looking at a piece of work that it's supposed to represent? It's, a, it's actually about a painting my wife did and her feelings about this painting. Uh, she wasn't sure if she liked it and she didn't know what to, what to think about it. So I extracted these uh, phrases from a letter that she had written me and added some other ones like uh, I repeat myself when under stress and that so on. And it just when you took it all out of context out of the letter without having any uh, idea what the actual subject matter was, it made a whole different uh, thing. So I, I like that. I felt pretty clear that it was an artist looking at the, you know, at his or her work. After. Really? That's amazing. You're the first person that, that said that. Well, no, because, uh, you know, I've talked to Robert a few times, and, and, you know, a lot of artists that I interview just say, you get so involved in your project that you don't know what to think about it. Yeah. You know, and even if you come back, and it's like almost like somebody else's work. Yeah. I've had a lot of people suggest what they thought it might be, and no one had, had gotten that close to it. You're the first there. <laughs> Most right. people think it's about uh, Rubik Cube or whatever that thing is called. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, Mate Kudasai, is that how you say it? That, that's probably the, my, my favorite song on the album. I think that's really? A pretty song. That's great. I, yeah, I like that one. That, that was more of a collaboration between Robert and myself. He had the, the chords, and I just suggested a melody. Because that's very much like uh, North Star. Yeah, the chords, I think, are very much like that. And, and I don't know about the melody. I, I'm... I don't see it as being like North Star, but I do understand why it sounds a little bit like the same kind of thing. It, it's, you know, the basic guitar part is very much a Robert Tripp ballad. The leads almost sound like Steve Howe of Yes. Well, that's me. That's my playing, uh -huh. the slide guitar stuff. Is there any uh, influence? Do you ever listen to him? Uh, Steve Howe? Yeah, I listened to him, but that, that was not an influence um, for, for that particular kind of playing. Yeah, I think Steve Howe's a very good guitarist, in fact, but... No, that style of playing slide guitar is just pretty much my own invention, I'm happy to say. <laughs> and I like it a lot, so... How about uh, Frame by Frame? What is the 
supposed to be about? Well, frame by frame actually is kind of an end joke for the band, for me, uh, because Tony and I, are the Americans of the band, we we tend to have a different outlook than the than Bill and Robert. And Bill and Robert like to analyze things a lot and talk and talk and talk about it, you know. And whereas Tony and I just basically are more loose in our approach and we just kind of like to go at it, you know, just say, come on, let's play the music, you know, we can talk about it some other time. So, uh, I don't know, I just, that lyric came into my mind as kind of a poke at those guys <laughs> for all the self-analysis that goes on. And it also related to my personal life because I, I had been trying to analyze myself a little bit and I just it just got to be ludicrous after a while. How much uh, do you think you're being a second guitarist in the band frees Robert to, to do what he does? Oh, I think Robert could pretty much do what he does without me. I, I, I think of my role in the band as an equal guitarist who just adds other dimensions that Robert doesn't have and occasionally we meet on a common ground that we both have. That, that's the that's the real joy of working with you know someone as good as Robert because I th I think uh, you get as as a guitarist between the two of us you get this giant realm giant range of guitar playing because he he's got things about him about his playing that that I don't have about mine and vice versa. Just comparing you know saying it was a let's say a trade off between uh, your part in the band and uh, David Cross, I thought that having a second guitarist really freed up Robert to do a lot more playing. At least that's what I could see uh, during the show. Well, that's possibly true. I, I hadn't really thought of it in that in that way. I look at I basically look at the new material and what's being developed in the band. Uh, I didn't really think about the old older material. I guess that's probably true in that case. Was David Cross or any other uh, violinist approach to join the band? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think that uh, Bill and, and I were the only two people approached to, to join the band, and then uh, for both players, we simply had to audition a lot of people. It's an you know, interesting band with a lot of diverse uh, personalities. You know, Robert has said that uh, Bill Bruford did not want to play uh, on red because he couldn't understand what was trying to be done. And Bill uh, has said that Robert is a man of contradiction on many levels. And, uh, so I was wondering, how do those two get along? Is, uh, uh, I think they get along very well because they communicate a lot and they, uh, so to speak, they agree to disagree. They do disagree quite often. Uh, I mean, it's a very, it's it's very healthy. And sometimes, if you didn't know about it, you'd think that these two guys weren't getting along at all. But in fact, they get along very well. I think they have a, a lot of respect for each other, and uh, and they're both very opinionated. And that's what you get when you put those two types of people together. Robert has also said that uh, King Crimson was one band that had malice and ill will as a as a constant part of its daily diet. Is that uh, still true? Um, well, Robert would tell you. I, I don't know my own personal feelings yet. It's too early for me to say, but Robert would tell you that there, there are a lot of people, uh, negative-type vibes in the air. Just uh, He just considers that to be common in, in rock music now of the 80s because of the six... He, this is his theory I'm telling you, you understand. 
in the 60s, people thought of musicians as people that were just like themselves, that they could trust, and so on and so forth. In the 70s, that myth was erased, and now in the 80s, people are basically kind of in a show-me, prove-it-to-me kind of attitude. Now, as I say, I, I really don't know how I feel about that, but it stands to reason that as much people are going to flatter you, there are also going to be people who are going to want to criticize you. And it just comes with the territory. <laughs> How about within the band? Is there a lot of uh, praise and criticism? Within the band, it's, it's a very good situation. Everyone likes each other. Everyone respects each other's opinions. And uh, I think it can continue on in that way because the band works together for, say, eight or ten weeks at a time and then go. everyone goes off and does other things and gets other input or, or output, you know, outlets, I mean. So if you work a band on that level and your commitment to the band when you're playing together is really 100%, it seems like it'll work out that you can continue to to work together. I, I don't think I could be in a band 100% of the time all year long at this point. Not even King Crimson or Talking Heads. It just would seem limiting to me because sometimes I have my own ideas that I want to put up, put forth too. For me now, I have, I, I'm going to start making my own solo albums. I've already made my first one, which comes out in January. And, you know, that's, that's a big thing for me to be able to do that. And I wouldn't want to go without that. So, or for instance, with Tony, as you know, it's very important for him to be able to, to work with Peter Gabriel or someone of that nature, you know. It just helps. It, it helps to have other outlets for your energies. And then when you come back into King Crimson and you work together, it's, it's like uh, it's all fresh again. So the plan is to, to work together for a set amount of time, break up, go do what you will, and then come back to it? Yeah, exactly. So that's the basic plan for the next uh, year or two. So I, I think you can expect three, four, or five albums out of the same group of people. Going back to the album, uh, the first song on the second side, which I won't try to pronounce. Belohun Jinjit. Which means, does it mean anything? Well, yes, originally it was, it's an anagram for the original title, which was Heat in the Jungle. It's kind of an analogy of a gun in the city, and it was uh, basically me making statements about John Lennon's death. I was highly affected by that, and I wanted to try and write something about someone who had been molested on the streets. Well, you know, the, the uh, irony of, of the whole story is I went out into the street to make this tape about crime, and about... 10 minutes time, I was doing my own sort of interview, like I was a person on the street being interviewed who had been molested. Mm -hmm. and, and in the meantime, I, I was ganged up on, nearly beat up by these guys who thought, mistook me for an undercover policeman. And then after that affair, after I nearly just barely escaped with my life on that one, I walked around the corner and two policemen tried to arrest me for uh, drugs, which of course I wasn't carrying any drugs, but they searched me, searched me, took my tape recorder apart, filed a police report on me, and everything. So I went back to the studio to tell them this whole story, this unbelievable occurrence that had just happened to me. And that's what's on the record, my telling of what it, what had just occurred. That's, that's why it's pretty nervous and, and real. <laughs> was that in New York? No, that was in London. And I happened to just stumble into this district of London around Island Studios where uh, there's a lot of violence happening. There's been several policemen killed in that area. And here I was walking along saying my little phrases in the tape recorder and these guys ganged around me and 
wanted to know what in the world I was doing, took the tape recorder from me in a very aggressive manner and turned it on, and it said, this is a dangerous place. He held a gun against me and all that stuff. And so they really thought I was a policeman. <laughs> These are some very aggressive people. Yeah. Uh, very dangerous place, as they say. The songs that you're playing live, is there any uh, discussion about doing Schizoid Man or some of the old uh, favorites? Uh, yeah, there's, there was some discussion about it, and we basically agreed we didn't really want to do that. You know, maybe that's upsetting to some of the diehard fans, but I hope that they can understand that the band is really not trying to revive the past. Uh, we're we're a new band that's trying to make a new a new noise. Personally, I don't feel it'd be a good idea to do very much of that. I think that's kind of a dead end street to to repeat things as, as old as 1969. That's you may as well do a Beatle medley if you're going to do that. <laughs> Which I would actually prefer. <laughs> so you are doing uh, from the old stuff, Red and Lark's Tunes, right? Yeah. Is that the uh, extent of what you're doing? Yeah, those are the only two. Red has never been performed live before, so that was kind of interesting. And Lark's Tongue just just seemed like a nice one to play. We were in agreement on those, and we felt that's that's a fair compromise for the part of the audience who wants to hear some old King Crimson. The audience seems to be pretty young, I think. Well, yeah, a lot of our audiences are younger than you would expect, and, and uh, a couple of the most recent audiences we've played for are, are college audiences, where most of those people don't don't have any affiliation with the old King Crimson, didn't even listen to the old King Crimson. And I find that particularly attractive to me. Don't get me wrong, because as I said, I really like old King Crimson material myself, but it, it's just easier if you can start out with a fresh slate and, and make, make your statements now in, in the light of 1981. <laughs> so it's a lot, lot better for us. Well, when you consider that, that this new band is not, you're getting some radio play, but not, not a tremendous amount, what do you think is attracting people to the new King Crimson? Well, I think it's probably word of mouth more than anything. Everyone in the band has somewhat of a reputation. And I think it just spreads around the people who remember Tony from Peter Gabriel will come to see other people who remember Bill Bruford from Yes, you know, or me from David Bowie or Talking Heads or Robert from all the various projects he's done. And then I think the word just gets around that, that what you're doing is valid and good. That's important. So, um, you have that's, my, that's a guess, because I really don't know with a band that's not getting much airplay, how you how you can have the phenomena of sell-out concerts, but it's working for us. What kind of music will your solo albums present is it going to be? It's a pretty eclectic uh, bunch of music. I, I feel it's, it's personally, it, it's my personal statements and musical tastes. I, I don't think it's, it'll be, uh, I don't think it sounds much like Talking Heads or King Crimson or the other things I've worked with, it's hard to explain, you know, I can't, uh, can't put my finger on what I would label it as. Who's playing with you? I have the same three musicians from the Gaga band, and uh, that's Christy Bly, who's a pianist, uh, Cliff Mayhew, the bass player, and Bill Jansen, pretty wild saxophone player that I have. And I, I've been doing all the drumming on the album, as well as guitar playing. Also, my four-year-old daughter plays piano on one song. Uh -huh. And it's a very exciting album for me. 
I mean, I hope people like it. But it's a bit premature to say a whole lot about it since it's not coming out for three months. Do you know what it's... Have you titled it yet? Yeah, it's going to be called The Lone Rhinoceros, which is one of the songs there that I wrote it, in fact, during a visit in Switzerland with David Bowie. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, it's just about the last rhinoceros in the world. And uh, it's got a great rhino effect guitar at the end. <laughs> what was your writing Hmm? Was there anything inspiring you to write about um, the lone rhinoceros? Yeah, there was. I, I happen to be extremely intrigued with rhinoceros. They're my favorite animals, mm -hmm. among the, my favorite, probably my very favorite. And I've had several kind of unique experiences with rhinos when I've gone to see them in zoos and so forth. Um, and I don't know, I've just always, I, I'm just intrigued by them. I don't know why. I can't, uh, can't say why. And at the same time, it's it's more a social statement about uh, the killing of animals, you know, the extinction of things like elephants and rhinos and uh, whales and all those those things. That really bothers me, you know. So if I'm going to make any social statements, I may as well make something about something like that. Where are you from? Uh, I've, I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. And now for the last three years, I've been living in Springfield, Illinois, which is where the rest of the band members live. I, I originally moved there because I wanted a nice community for my family, and we had some friends there who eventually turned into my band, and they had a studio there. And it was just a good situation. Was, I didn't want to be in a, in a New York City trying to raise a family. Mm -hmm. But I think maybe next year I'll move to New York outside of the city somewhere if I can. Springfield is kind of getting to be not so good for us now. Uh, it's too hard to get to and a number of other things. What, uh, when were you with Bowie? I started with David in 1978 in March and continued through about a year and a half following that. I did uh, a, a whole world tour with him, mm -hmm. uh, which lasted about 10, 10 months, I guess and two albums, one called the Stage Album and the other is called Lodger, which Lodger I really liked a lot. Stage Album is basically a live album, which didn't appeal to me as much. But making a studio album, which also was Brian Eno was producing also. <laughs> so it, it was very much fun, you know. I was put in a position of doing some pretty experimental type guitar sounds and, and things, and that, that is one of my great pleasures. How would you uh, assess the, the show at the Metro? Would you say it was it was good? The show at the Metro, I thought was uh, yeah, I thought it was good. Not the best we've done, but I thought it was very good. For me, you know, these you, you always have something you remember about it. I remember that it was a night when I was having particular problem with my guitar, which was I changed bridges on my guitar and. The new bridge I had put on it was breaking strings at a mad pace. So that's my overall picture of the whole night. I can only remember thinking, oh gosh, I hope I don't break another string. But I think the concert was good. I remember that afterwards I felt it had been a good concert with, with the exception of my problem that I was having. I think of the last three, the last three songs, which are Elephant Talk and Discipline at Lark's Tongues, are just incredible. I mean, that was really probably the most energetic thing I've ever seen on stage in terms of a whole band playing together and really 
you know, being aroused and, you know, really arousing the audience. Well, that's great, you know, but it's very hard for any musician to be objective about what, what's happening there as you're playing it. Right. There's so many things involved. Especially just one, one part of in, in discipline. And, uh, and, you know, Robert was practically off his chair. Yeah. And, and that was, you know, and all the times I've seen him play, I've rarely ever seen him stand up. And that just, I mean, the energy level, I think it was the first lead on that, uh, on that song. It was, it was really very energetic. You, know, you just yeah. you don't see too much of that. That's a good one. I really like that song. Yeah. That's the one where Robert and I both kind of just unleashed this monster guitar duet. I like that. Has anyone ever told you, kind of, and this is, not to, this is a compliment, not an insult, I don't know how you'll take it, but you kind of reminded me on stage and, and maybe look a little bit like Mark Knopfler of Dire Straits. Mm, I could see why you would say that. Yeah. And then again, I wasn't that close, so I couldn't really see you that well. But, uh, well, I have the same receding hairline as Mark Knopfler, probably maybe even the same kind of facial structure. But no one has ever told me that. Yeah, I can see the resemblance there. Plus, you were smiling a lot, which is another thing that, that I don't think too many people ever saw uh, King Crimson members do. They just, uh, not, it wasn't a smiling band, really. But, uh, well, as I say, that's, that's a part of my, my personality. I can't hide it. I, I can't stay serious for too long. I, I'm just too uh, kind of exuberant. <laughs> I heard uh, Robert tell a story on, uh, when he was on the radio here that... that uh, he, he wanted you and called you up when you were with the heads, and uh, he said, well, I can always call Adrian Ballou. He'll always be uh, straight and uh, prepared to, you know, speak uh, intelligently on things. And he called you up and said you were, you were fairly blasted that night. Oh, yeah. It was the first night that we had arrived in, in uh, England with Talking Heads, and we went to a, a Russian restaurant where they were serving vodka, these hot vodka things. Well, this was a particular one called Honey Vodka. They had 15 different kinds, and each time they would serve you one of these, it would be lit and it would be hot. And it took so long to get down into the, the restaurant from the waiting area where they were serving the drinks that by the time we got to the food part of it, we were all severely blasted. <laughs> that is a rarity. I don't usually do that to myself, but it was kind of a, kind of a celebration, and I was in the spirit of it. When he called, I think I was in the throes of one of the worst hangovers I can remember. <laughs> in fact, I, I received a message, urgent, to call Robert Fripp, and I said, no way, I can't possibly talk to anyone, not even Robert Fripp. <laughs> yeah, that, that's pretty much the way he described it. Yeah, oh boy, I was feeling bad. I felt bad the whole day, in fact. And then, um, right before Robert called, and I had received this message. The oddest thing happened. It flashed on my mind very quickly. What could he be calling about? Wouldn't it be weird if he wanted to form a band? And then I just kind of even took it a step further, and I thought, yeah, we could get Bill Bruford in on drums. Oh, God, it'd be great. You know, and then I just put it right out of my mind. It was just one of those thoughts where I was sure, you know, because I didn't even think he and Bill got along together, and I certainly didn't think that that was why he was calling me. When he did call later, and that was the first thing he said, as I'm thinking about forming a band with you and Bill, are you interested? <laughs> I almost fell over. Were you uh, at all surprised that he wanted to form it and call it King Crimson? Was there any discussion about perhaps calling it something else? Oh, yeah, it was called something else the whole time. For the 
all the way up till about the sixth or seventh week we had been working together. It was called Discipline. And I didn't think there was any chance of it being called King Crimson. I thought that was totally out of the question. It was, it was never even brought up until it was realized that, um, well, for one thing, that Tony and I didn't care for the name Discipline as a name for a band. I personally felt it was kind of an unfriendly name. And then uh, Robert made his own realizations that it, it was King Crimson, whether you called it that or not. And that all kind of coincidentally came about in Paris. And uh, we agreed at that point, hey, let's do call it King Crimson. And Tony just simply put it, you know, it's a better name. Because <laughs> he had no, uh, no knowledge of the old King Crimson at all. He'd never heard anything by them. That surprised me. It's, uh, it's almost funny sometimes, I guess, when you're in a position that I'm in, where you listen to a lot of music, whereas you're playing it and you're on the road a lot, you don't get to hear a lot of music. It's funny, though. It's kind of strange to imagine somebody not ever hearing the old King Crimson. Uh, yeah, but Tony was very busy in that period of time and uh, with a lot of different kinds of artists doing a lot of things. You know, he's worked with so many people over the past decade. And I guess King Crimson really was a cult band. Whereas if you were, say, working with uh, Paul Simon, you you might not hear about King Crimson. Right. <laughs> That's true. How far back does your career go? My career actually started uh, at the time of the Beatles. Uh-huh. I mean, that's when I really took up the drums and said, I'm really going to go for it now. And it was a real exciting time. It, it was several years later when I decided that I wanted to write songs, say when I was about 16 or 17. Um, and then I started teaching myself to play guitar with the intent of being a songwriter, not, not intending to ever play solos or anything that drastic. I just wanted a working knowledge of the guitar enough to write some songs for the band that I was in so we could make records. <laughs> Pretty simple. <laughs> And what was your first uh, professional band? The first professional band I had was a band called the Denims. We all wore these uh, little denim uh, vests and pants, of course. <laughs> and it was, it was pretty funny. And that band lasted, oddly enough, for about four years, doing real, real good at uh, your basic uh, English invasion group imitations. You know, we did the Beatles, Rolling Stones, Kinks, so on, so on. And it was a lot of fun. That's also the same band where I decided if that band was going to do anything, I should write some songs. When I was a junior in high school, I got mononucleosis, and I had to stay at home for two months solid. So in that period of time, that's when I started teaching myself to play. I borrowed the guitar from the guitarist in the band. I had a great little arrangement with him where I would uh, polish his guitar for him if I could borrow it. <laughs> so I sat there in my lonely little bed writing songs and, and polishing guitars. Where, where did you go to high school? I went to high school in, in northern Kentucky, which is uh, right across the Ohio River from Cincinnati, at a place called Boone County High School. <laughs> Are you its most famous alumnus? I, I sincerely doubt that anyone from, uh, from my graduating class of 1967 has any idea that I'm even in music or anything. <laughs> you know, they've all gone on since to be uh, infamous plumbers or something. <laughs> there was a class reunion 
of course, in 1977. But in 1977, I was thoroughly uh, on the road with Frank Zappa. Oh, right. That was the first band that I, I was in that actually did international touring and famous people and all that stuff. It's bad to work with Frank Zappa, as people say. Oh, I, I totally look at it the other way. I think it's great to work with Frank. Uh, it's uh, it's very regimented and disciplinarian and all that stuff, and it's he you know demands perfection from you, consistency, and there's not much freedom in what you invent. Most of the parts are invented by Frank, but I liked it that way. I just thought that that was the way it should be for his music, and I thoroughly enjoyed that. You know, having it was, it was kind of like finally getting my musical education. All my education up to that point had just been self-imposed by listening to records and figuring out what other people were doing on those records. When I finally got with Frank, not reading music or, or anything, uh, you know, I worked with him very closely, still working on on uh, music by rote, <laughs> sort of. And, you know, I got to know him real well, and I, I liked the experience. It was kind of like having a... Uh, a college professor at last really telling me what it's all about I'm just looking for the Zappa albums now are you with him on any albums? just this one called Seek Your Booty oh right okay. and on there the most memorable thing I do is the Bob Dylan imitation that's right with the little harmonica and stuff that was another great side of being with Frank you know I I was the only person who didn't read so he would bring in this heavy music for everyone to play and it would be written out and they would learn it that way Whereas me, it would just be kind of thrown up to me to to do some theatrics and all the crazy things that the other more jazz-flavored players wouldn't wouldn't necessarily do, you know. So I was doing costume changes and imitations of Elvis Presley and Bob Dylan and things of that nature, you know. That is a great imitation, does. Oh, it was a lot of fun. So I, I really respect Frank and I have great memories of that time. What about the, the songs on that, during that period? The, uh, the Seek Your Booty stuff is almost, uh, I don't know. You seem to, to be getting to the point where things were getting a little silly and a little sophomoric and, you know, the, the kind of beating the, uh, the idea of making fun of humanity into the ground. Well, I think that's just, uh, that's, that's Frank's statement mm -hmm. about, uh, about the world. <laughs> Did you have any, you know, did you have any trouble with that, or did you... Well, I must admit, coming from the Midwest and being a uh, pretty straightforward guy, you know, I I had a bit of problem coming around to singing some of the dirty lyric things, you know. That was never... I, I didn't know anything about Frank Zappa, and that was probably one of the reasons I, I was never into that part of it. Yeah, it was a little embarrassing for me sometimes. I don't know why that sounds crazy, I guess. But... I was thinking, gosh, if my mom was to show up here, <laughs> you know, I'm still working on that, that basis, the little uh, Protestant morals and all that stuff. But, you know, you get over that pretty soon. I enjoyed it so much it didn't matter. Uh -huh. <laughs> Did you leave that for any particular reason? Well, when I left Frank's band, it was to go play with David Bowie, of course. His, David's tour started a week after my commitment with Frank ended. And uh, originally, I, I thought that I would just tour with David for a couple of months, and, and meanwhile, Frank was going to take a couple of months to put together the movie we had made, Baby Snakes.
uh, neither of those things worked out as planned. First of all, Frank couldn't get the finance, financial backing for the movie, so instead he formed a new band and took off again. And that, and then my, for my side of it, you know, working with David worked out real well, and I just continued on with him. There was no bad, uh, bad time between Frank and I. We parted good friends. One other thing I'll ask you, and then I'll let you go, and that is you, you've been traveling quite a bit in the last, I guess, four years, with different musicians probably before that as well, but uh, is it hard for you uh, having a family and being on the road constantly? Yeah, it is. I don't know what to say about it, except that it's the real heartbreaker of the whole thing. I have I have a great wife who's really supportive of what I'm doing and understanding about it, and you know it's just it's really hard on both of us because uh, you know I met, I have two children. My little boy is two years old. His name's Ernie, and my daughter is four years old, and her her name is Audie. And you know, aside from missing my wife, who is essentially not only my wife but my very best friend and closest person to me in the whole world, it's very hard. It's just as hard on them too, but it's a, it's a part of the thing. You you there's not nothing you can do about it. <laughs> so you kind of have to have to deal with it. I find that a lot of times I'm enjoying something. I I could probably be enjoying it much more if if my heart was not somewhere else. You know, a lot of times something really great is happening for me, and I'm still just thinking, boy, I'd just be I'd be tickled pink just to be sitting in my living room right now. <laughs> Which is kind of strange to feel that way sometimes. It's hard to be 100% into things. But I'm always 100% into the hour and a half that we spend on stage. That's, that's what it amounts to for me. I'm really, you know, glad and fortunate to have these kind of opportunities. And you, you've got to do it while you can. I understand the music business well enough to know that it won't last forever. And uh, you, you've got to do it while you can. I mean, I hope to be playing music all my life. I'm not saying that I won't, but you know how it goes. <laughs> you're in fashion for a while, and then you're not for a while, and then maybe you are again for a while. Um, how long is the tour going to last? This tour lasts through the middle of December, about uh, December 18th. We have uh, the last two weeks are uh, in Japan, and the rest of it is, of course, across the rest of the United States. Uh, going down through most of the East Coast seaboard, then into... Uh, into the Midwest, and down into the Texas area and all that, and then up to California. It is a good band to watch. Yes. I, I think that it's intense enough that people can really watch what's going on. It doesn't exactly need a uh, theatrics or anything of that nature. Okay, Mark. Bye-bye. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tapes Archive podcast. Please remember you can always find more information about the show and the individual episodes at our website, thetapesarchive.com. Until next time, the vault is closed.